Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London, I'm Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. There's a population-sized hole in much of economics, a failure to consider the effects of policies on people who aren't yet born. We examine a thorny philosophy problem that tries to value the lives that economists have largely overlooked. And dusty old foreign language phrasebooks are of great use to historians. They reveal how their authors and readers thought about the world, though some of their phrase choices can be bizarre. Excuse me, how long have you had that goiter? But first... In April 2014, Narendra Modi was running to be Prime Minister of India. He did as candidates do and made a speech at a rally. In it, he warned of a pink revolution that the government was promoting the slaughter of cattle and propping up the beef trade. In short, that the government was encouraging the killing of cows. It was a powerful political argument. In Hinduism, cows are sacred. And in India, coming across as the protector of cows can be the ticket to electoral success. Under Mr. Modi's Bharatiya Janata Party, they have become cemented as a symbol for the struggle to remake India as a Hindu state. It's had brutal consequences for people, and even for the cows themselves. In India, cows are considered holy. They are worshipped. They have first dibs on everything, from the streets to food. It's kind of incredible, but India has more cattle than any other country in the world. Avantika Chokoti is an international correspondent for The Economist. If you go somewhere like a temple, you see statues of cows that are sort of painted up and covered in marigolds. You also see real live cows, which are being fed and worshipped by people who are hoping for good luck in return. And what are the theological roots of that? Why cows? So this is really interesting. If you ask a Hindu family in India and you tell them, you know, why do you you revere the cow? You'll probably hear a long answer about all of the sustenance, all of the good products cows provide. So, you know, an Indian housewife will make paneer, there'll be lots of butter and cream and milk-based desserts, and everybody's incredibly grateful for all of the useful products of cows. But if you actually look at the sort of religious texts, which, frankly, few Hindus in India do today, 
it's a little bit more mixed than that. So if you look at the Vedas, which is sort of the fountainhead of wisdom, you know, the cows is mentioned a lot, but it's not completely, absolutely clear that, you know, it's inedible, as it were. So you have gods which are sacrificing cows. You see gods saying that they really have a taste for cattle. In the Mahabharata, which is one of Hinduism's great epics, 2,000 cows are slaughtered every day in the kitchen of one king. So given that ambiguity, why are cows sacred now? The thing with Hinduism that you know strikes me as incredibly different to other faiths is that it's a decentralized religion. So there's no living figurehead that's comparable to the Pope. There's not one text like the Bible or the Quran. And Hindu families sort of have their pick of deities. And that has, over the years, created lots of room for powerful people, both religious and political, to, you know, push their own practices. So there are a number of periods over time when the veneration of the cows on the rise. Perhaps the first was around 500 BC, which is when the Buddha apparently died and when Buddhism was really spreading in India and the Brahmins, the sort of high caste, were trying to maintain their influence. And the thing that they really struggled with was this Buddhist belief in non-violence. And they really took issue, the Buddhists, with the fact that cows were being sacrificed by Hindus. And so sort of to take the moral high ground, the Brahmins not only stopped sacrificing cows, they sort of, one extra, they stopped eating them and actually started to worship the animal. And that belief has stuck around for 2,500 years? Yeah, so there's a lot of historians who look into this. And one, James Staples, is a social anthropology professor at Brunel who studied the role of the cow. And he traces a line from the origin of what we've called the myth of the holy cow with these Brahmin Buddhist tensions to sort of the politics of today. It's very much about othering and defining your own identity, what you are, but in doing that, defining who is other. So you're either defining Muslims or Christians or the British or whoever it might be as as the enemy. And the cow provides a very useful symbol for that. And I sort of point us towards the next period when this myth of the holy cow was really on the up, which was in the colonial era. You know, eating beef was the dividing line between Hindus and Muslims in India, and it was also a dividing line between the Hindu majority and the British colonisers. In 1857, the Indian Rebellion, which is sort of very well known, it apparently started over rumours that the local sepoys learned that their rifle cartridges were being greased with beef fat. There was a real uprising amongst the Hindus who, who were fighting. And by independence, you know, all of this adds up. And the cow became regarded as a crucial part of not only the Hindu identity, but also the Indian identity. And there's countless quotes from people like Mahatma Gandhi about the cow and how we must protect it. In around 1949, when the Indian constitution was drafted, Parliament was receiving, you know, tens of thousands of letters, postcards, all kinds of communication from people who were really pushing that, hey, we need to put this in our core legal text. We need to put protection of the cow in there. And this was a time when the people drafting the constitution had all kinds of claims of being open-minded and inclusive, but you ended up still with Article 48 of the Indian constitution, which few people actually 
pay attention to, but it it calls on state policymakers to endeavour to prevent cow slaughter, to try to preserve the native breed. And, you know, that's still with us today. And tell us more about that. How does that politicization of cows continue today? So James Staples at Brunel, you know, he says that there's still moments when the cow comes back into Indian politics. Often follows or runs in parallel to the rise, in a way, of Hindu fundamentalism. So when the right or Hindu fundamentalist or populism runs high, then at the same time you have a rise in these sentiments about the cow being sacred and about the need really to protect it. And, you know, throughout time, you've had surges whereby these cow protection movements take on politicians. They try to fight to have beef bans fundamentally in place in India. And you've always seen sort of cow-related violence, sort of lynchings of predominantly Muslims, but also persecutions of Christians and other communities that still exist in India, which rely on cows for meat, for sustenance, for much-needed protein. And under Narendra Modi's government, has this sort of politicization of the cow intensified? Yeah, so Narendra Modi, with him, this whole right-wing movement has one of their own in power. He has, since before he took office, spoken so much about the cow, essentially weaponized this, made it a symbol of Hindu nationalism, of this idea that Hindus in India have been challenged by centuries of invaders, Muslim, British, and He's poured millions of dollars of taxpayer money into cow shelters. He really hasn't done enough to condemn the cow vigilante groups that go about attacking people who they think are abusing cattle. Under his rule, BJP-led states have done a lot to stop the sale of cattle for slaughter, to stop the killing of cattle for meat. So the position of cows in India today is, is, is bad for the cattle industry. It's bad for victims of vigilante attacks. How is it for the cows themselves? So this is the interesting thing. This is the thing that kind of convinces me that this is not a deeply held belief and a genuine desire to protect the cows, but rather a political and smart, savvy way of rallying people. Because life for cows in India is pretty bad. And frankly, in recent years has actually got worse. So if you look at cow sanctuaries, I interviewed some people who run them. They said, you know, these right-wing politicians, they come, they cut the ribbon, they say that they're going to support us, but they don't really care about cow sanctuaries actually providing any form of shelter for these cows. It's very expensive to run these operations and, you know, money runs dry, food runs dry. Basically, the cattle population under Modi has just ballooned. You've got more and more cattle. Small dairy farmers, these are very poor people in India. They have no use for their cows. You know, they don't even really need them for farm work anymore. They don't even need the buffaloes. But they can't really sell them. It's getting harder to sell them when they go dry. And they're basically just abandoning them. You've always seen in India cows roaming the streets in cities and getting hit by cars, choking on rubbish. They're often so thin you can see their ribs through their skin. In rural areas, these wandering cattle eat crops and you have endless reports of fed up farmers shooting them, just trying to basically attack them, get them off their crops. So it's definitely not good for these poor people. It's not good for cows. The only people I can see benefiting from all of this, frankly, are the politicians. All right, Avantika, thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, John.
One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. The year is 1852. HMS Birkenhead is carrying troops to fight on the frontier wars in Britain's Cape Colony, what is now South Africa. Strikes a rock near the delightfully named Danger Point. Simon Cox is a senior economics writer at The Economist. It began to sink, and the soldiers on board assembled quietly, according to one of their accounts. Meanwhile, the small number of women and children on board clambered to safety across a gangplank to the ship's cutter, a small boat tethered alongside. All the women and children were saved, but over 440 men lost their lives. Some of them drowned. Some of them were crushed by bits of the ship. Several of them were eaten by sharks that still congregate near that part of South Africa. This principle of saving women and children first became known as the Birkenhead Drill. And it became even more famous when the same drill was invoked on the Titanic. Hadn't we better get the women and children into the boat, sir? Many people consider it an unwritten law of the sea. And there are lots of rationales for this. It may even seem obvious to you. It certainly seemed obvious to people at the time. Women and children were considered naturally more helpless, to use the phrase of one reporter. There are some actual practical examples of this on the Titanic. A fashionable designer who said herself that she was a prisoner in my own skirt because she couldn't jump overboard, given the encumbrance of her fashion. But some people looking into this idea of why do we save women and children first see a deeper reason for it, given the importance of women and children to the future of a society. We see this even with the Titanic survivors, that many of the younger people went on to have children, and those children had children of their own. So in a sense, by rescuing over 700 people from the Titanic, the lifeboats of the Titanic also saved their descendants, the additional lives that these survivors went on to create. They were saved from non-existence, if you like. So one question is, how should we think about these sorts of people, the descendants of survivors? And there is a branch of philosophy that does precisely this. It thinks about how to value those kinds of lives. Population ethics. So it's quite common, for example, in economics or policy analysis to ask how an act or a policy will hurt or help a group of people. But what if the policy itself creates the group of people it might help or hurt? How do you think about that? This can sound very abstract, but of course there are examples all around us. Anytime a family is considering whether to have a child, that act will create another person. Should the government pay for the fertility treatment a couple might require? That turns that rather intimate question into a question of public policy. At the other end of the scale, you might think of policies on climate change, which will have all sorts of effects on the economy, on the way cities are laid out, and will presumably also have an effect on the size of Earth's population. 
but how should we weigh those different populations? You might still think this is all terribly abstract, just a way for philosophers to entertain themselves, but it could have real practical importance. Think about something like road safety. At the moment, we estimate how much it's worth the government spending in order to improve road safety. Now, to do that, you can't be too squeamish. You have to put a dollar value on saving a life. What if you went a step further? What if, as well as putting a dollar value on saving the motorist's life, you thought about saving the lives of the kids that motorist might go on to have? So that's the sort of practical question that a philosopher of population ethics might ask. But does anyone actually ask it in government policymaking or in the wider world of policy analysis? Well, often they don't. The life of your potential offspring has never really been counted as part of the value of saving your life. Climate change probably will change the size of the world's population. But in all the writings on the harm of global warming, you very rarely see the effect on population mentioned amongst the harms or benefits. So what accounts for this strange silence? And the answer, I think, was best captured by a Canadian philosopher called Jan Narvison, who said, We're in favour of making people happy, but neutral about making happy people. He wrote that in the 1970s, and it nicely sums up this view that whilst we care a lot about the well-being of people who do or will already exist, we're neutral about whether to bring more such people into existence. It's neither good nor bad. One way to see this intuition of neutrality in action is to think about how you would decide whether to have a child or not. You might take all sorts of things into account, but suppose you decided not to have a child or not to have another child. You would not think that made the world worse. You would not think that was an immoral or unbenevolent thing to do. Your decision not to have a child is considered morally neutral. Now you might object, well, surely it's worse for the child never to exist. But of course, that's a bit of a philosophical muddle, because if the child never exists, there is no child for it to be worse for. So the intuition of neutrality can be very appealing, but it also poses problems. Because although many of us are neutral about making happy people, we're not at all neutral about bringing people into the world who we know will suffer lives of great agony. So although the intuition of neutrality can seem very appealing, in the hands of a philosopher who looks for inconsistencies, it becomes quite difficult to maintain. So what are the alternatives? What other philosophical views could we take? Well, some philosophers take what's called an impersonal view. And there, they don't particularly privilege people who already exist or already will exist. They also look at people who could exist. And they weigh those lives too. And in particular, they think of ways to evaluate and rank different futures for humanity or different futures for a particular population. Ways to decide which population is better, which population is worse, not for anyone in particular, not for anyone who exists in all these scenarios, but from an impersonal point of view, as if you were God deciding which world to create. Now, that view can have quite stark implications. For example, if you think that adding a potential person to the world makes that world better, then it might be worth adding them, even if it requires some sacrifice on the part of everybody else. You could have a situation in which a bigger, worse-off population could be morally preferable to a smaller, better-off one. There can be trade-offs between the quality of life and the quantity of life. 
one way to think about this trade-off between quality and quantity would be to imagine a world on the brink of environmental ruin. And humanity can only go on existing if we cut back on the quality of our lives, if we pollute less. And so if our generation pollutes less, then maybe humanity gets to add another generation. If our kids cut back, then maybe humanity gets to add another generation on top of that. So there, there's this very direct connection between cuts in our quality of life and increases in the quantity of life, not at a particular point in time, but as it unfolds over time. Now, the problem with that kind of thought experiment is where do you stop? Once you put in those terms, then even quite savage cuts in the quality of life would be worthwhile because of the increase in the quantity of life. You might be forced to conclude that a threadbare world is better than a very comfortable one if enough extra people get to experience it. That is one version of what is known within philosophy as the repugnant conclusion. It's the logical implication of an argument that strikes us intuitively as wrong or repugnant. Why should a big sacrifice in the quality of life be justified even if it allows for an increase in the quantity of life? The person who first named the repugnant conclusion was a famous philosopher called Derek Parfit. He imagined a life that was barely worth living, a life of muzak and potatoes was his example. If there were enough people living that life, it might be a preferable world to one where many fewer people were living lives of great joy and abundance. He thought that was a repugnant conclusion. So after sitting with this problem for several decades now, some philosophers have decided to set it to one side. They've decided that actually, because it's so hard to avoid, we shouldn't try to avoid it. Of course, we're never going to be in the position of choosing between a world where a few people live in great joy and trillions live on music and potatoes. We're going to be in other more practical worlds with decisions like how much to spend on road safety and who to save from a shipwreck. When the young British writer Eric Newby set out to walk in the Hindu Kush in 1956, he knew that he would be visiting places no Englishman had been since 1891. Nonetheless, he was hopeful of communicating. Catherine Nixie is a Britain correspondent for The Economist. In his bag, he carried the 1901 phrasebook Notes on the Bashgali Language, and he sat down on a rock in the high Himalayas one afternoon, and pretty quickly when he opened it, his hopes faded. <laughs> Where most guidebooks explain how to do things like order a small glass of red wine, order a coffee with milk, this one offered instead phrases of what you could describe as more opaque utility. In a ash One of the first phrases that Newby came across was one which the guidebook explained meant, I saw a corpse in the field this morning. And that was quickly followed by... Tutotti baglopilta? Thy father fell into the river. I have nine fingers, you have ten. And then another one which meant, I have an intention to kill you. They weren't all like that. Some of them had a more conversational tone. So there was one which meant, how long have you had a goiter? But overall, Newby wrote, it left him with a disturbing impression of the waking life of the Bashgalis. 
Well, it was quite an odd read. Newbie's book was a very good example of the phrase book. People don't think much about phrase books these days, but they're a very ancient genre. They began in antiquity. You have Greek and Roman phrase books say things like, oh, look, there's a slave being taken across the forum. And they flourished first in the age of the medieval pilgrimage. And then again, they flourished in the age of the empires. And they flourished most of all, probably in the 20th century, in the era of the aeroplane and of international travel. Once these things were essential, nobody would set off to their holiday to Italy without a phrasebook to tell them how to ask the way to the Pantheon or order a pizza in their bag. But what was once essential, the internet has been rapidly in the past few years making redundant. Figures from Nielsen Book Research, a market research company, show that sales have fallen 40% in three years. And the phrasebook really is quietly dying. Probably few will mourn them when they go. The phrasebook's calmly idealised conversations rarely went quite so well in life as they seem to on the page. But for all of their quirks and for all of their oddnesses, they're invaluable to historians because they show you, almost better than anything else, how people are thinking about the world. I headed off to Cambridge University Library, which is a copyright library, so it has the rights to own every book that has been published in Britain. And I got out scores and scores of these books. Some of them are so old that the pages start to crumble off in your hands. Um, Some of them are so unread that people haven't even cut the pages on them. And all of them are completely fascinating. To sift through them is to sift through a pretty much unparalleled source on the assumptions and stereotypes that have been made by the British on other people over the past few centuries of travel. And what you get when you look through them is a kind of archaeology of othering. For example, a wonderful 1900 English-Welsh phrasebook that pictures itself for the use of travellers and students offers Have you any apples? Where is the butter market? Before adding the slightly more unexpected They have cut off his arm. This peculiar aspect of phrasebooks, this sort of almost surreal tendency of them to have the very humdrum next to the completely eccentric, was satirised, as people of a certain age will probably remember, by Monty Python. My hovercraft is full of eels. My hovercraft is full of eels. When you look through a large number of these books in one go, What immediately becomes clear is that each book reflects the stereotypes that the British had for that nation. So J.B. Leake's 1928 English Conversation Handbook shows that Italy was then, as it is now still a bit, seen as a land of aesthetic indulgence. So there's an incredibly long section on what to say at the barbers. Mirada i baffi. Shave my mustachio. Per piacere, mi rialzi un poco i baffi. Kindly twist up my mustachio. Un po' di brillantina ai baffi. A little pomade on my mustachio. And that comes after an even lengthier section on food. It goes on for about 20 pages and it's full of long lists of all of the many things that you might want to order in an Italian restaurant if you're a gentleman abroad in Italy in the 20s. Datemi una bottiglia di vino rosso. Give me a bottle of red wine. Di vino bianco. Of white wine. Datemi un pezzo di formaggio di brie. Give me some brie cheese. Un camembert. Some camembert. Un gruviera. Some gruyere. That goes on for about half a page too. 
These guidebooks are not just an insight into the fears and worries and hopes of the people traveling. They're also a little bit of an insight into how they might have behaved. A lot of these phrases were written by colonizers, by people who were going out to live in Britain's colonies. Some of them were written by people who were going out to act as colonizers in countries. Some of them were written by missionaries and for missionaries. Many of the phrases in books of this kind are unintentionally telling. They show you a kind of imperial brutality that history books will often overlook. The phrase books offer a chance to eavesdrop in the more humdrum everyday cruelties of an empire. So if you open the 1908 Hindustani self-taught manual, then you find such phrases as hold your tongue or beat that lazy boy or this shirt is badly ironed. And they go on and on for pages in the vocabularies you have such phrases as boy, bayonet, fixed bayonet. It's an entire alphabet of oppression. The fading genre of the phrasebook is unlikely to be missed by most people. They'll be perfectly happy to take out their phone and do an automatic translation standing there for exactly what they want to say. But something will be lost when it's gone. Robert Frost, the American poet, once said that poetry is what gets lost in translation. But reading through these books, it's hard not to feel that there's some kind of poetry that's found in some of them too. There's something about all those dislocated phrases put together, and in many places, the hopefulness of what's written. There's a lovely, kind of almost T.S. Eliot-ish section in a 1984 Ty County grammar that I particularly liked that ran, Owing to the road being slippery, I nearly fell, ten years ago. Come here. Although perhaps the last word should lie instead with an English Kashmiri phrasebook that I found, which read, I am now composing a grammar. I don't exactly comprehend this, It is time to conclude. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. This is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.